Hey everyone, first off, we at the Familiar Strange want to acknowledge and celebrate the first Australians on whose traditional lands we are recording this podcast and pay our respects to the elders of the Ngunnawal and Ngambri peoples, past, present and emerging. Let's go. Hello and welcome to Familiar Strange, brought to you with support from the Australian Anthropological Society, the Australian National University's College of Asia and Pacific, and the College of Arts and Social Sciences, produced in collaboration with the American Anthropological Association, and coming to you from the Centre for the Public Awareness of Science, I'm your Familiar Stranger today, Simon Theobald, together with Neely, Dr Jodie Lee Trembar. Ooh, thank you. Dr Julia Brown. Hello. Kylie Wong-Dolan. Hi. Today we're starting with me. This week I am thinking about mediocrity. Now, I'm going to frame this in terms of my own field work. I came across the idea of perfection, and I think I've spoken a little bit about it in this podcast before. What I noticed in Iran was that particularly in the educational sphere, so I did a lot of research with people working in um, private English education institutions, uh, and I realized that there was a very small window between what was considered to be effectively perfect perfect score being 20 out of 20 and what was considered to be a failure. But it made me think a lot about what it is to be just good enough, not perfect, not the best, not the most amazing person who ever lived. In Australia, we talk about this idea of the tall poppy syndrome. We had this kind of uncomfortableness, I think, with excellence and the idea that people who are very good should blow their own trumpets effectively. But in a lot of other societies, there is this real idea that excellence is something that should be shown, demonstrated, etc., and that wherever possible you should say to people, look, I am the best. And I think in some ways this has been a, a kind of product of, or maybe one of the byproducts of neoliberalism, the idea that there's this culture of competitiveness that comes with neoliberalism. And I think that has spurred on a sense that we should all be trying to be the best all at once, even though that is a functionally an impossible task. So I guess I'm wondering, what do you think? Do you think it's okay to be just good enough? Is mediocrity something that we should embrace? Or should we still trying to live towards this goal of ultimate perfection? I'm reminded of a conversation I had with a friend once, and he is a bit of a statistics nerd. And we were walking through a shopping centre, and I was just looking at people, and I commented to him, you know, most people are pretty average looking, aren't they? And he just looked at me like, (laughs) uh, yeah, (laughs) because most people therefore and so I had to like do the whole you know idea of distribution for me with his hands and gestures I think that the very idea that we can all be excellent is literally impossible and yet I agree with you that neoliberalism does ask us to strive for excellence and you know my research is about universities and so every university website in Australia putting tall poppy syndrome aside every university website in Australia talks about how that university is excellent in various ways and you know ANU particularly talks about how it is excellent in all ways and it's number one in Australia and so I think that we are expected to all be excellent and therefore mediocrity is literally the only thing we can be if we are all excellent because if we're all excellent then we're all the same and that's mediocrity. That's depressing. Julia Brown. I think Simon's question is definitely coming from the perspective of someone who's about to finish their PhD (laughs) and is bathed in self-doubt. But the context of your concern aside, I would say that mediocrity as a measurement is probably something that is made over time. So your performance 
over an amount of uh, achievements that are accumulated, blah, blah, blah. So in terms of the question of whether it's okay to embrace mediocrity, I would say yes, because to me it's always helped to focus on what you're doing in the present and doing your best then because you can't really control the long-term outcomes of those things, which is what mediocre or not is going to be decided by. And also the standards that you have, you know, you're placing those standards. You don't know what other people's will be later down the track. So try and go a little bit easier on yourself because there's no way of really knowing how mediocre you actually are and only time is going to tell. So like focus on process rather than outcome. Yeah, I guess so. Control what you can in the present time by working to your own standards, but remember that those standards are probably higher than what the overall goal is anyway. So as long as you're doing your best, that's not mediocre and it'll probably pay off later anyway. But then when we said this idea of striving for an individual best, be your best, why can't we say to children, it's okay to be mediocre? I think it's okay to be mediocre on yeah. some things, right? Okay, so does that mean you have to be good at something in order to justify being me- mediocre at something else? And I don't know whether that's productive either. Can you just be mediocre at everything? Depends how fulfilled you feel. Kylie? I definitely think there's room for mediocrity. If we're able to eschew these really high standards for a moment and think about where most people lie on your graph, Jody. Mm. it is sort of in the mean. Mm. And I think to think about yourself as somewhere in the, in the middle is probably healthy and And most likely realistic but also I think it can be really generative it allows people room to strive if they Mm. can and want to and it also is more forgiving of failure or more forgiving of us falling Mm. below the average I think it does depend so much on what we value though Mm. I think I want to value mediocrity so that we can strive and fail and that's that can all be okay I don't think we all need to strive to be the best or or should because it's that's an unattainable expectation. I would love to keep this conversation going forever, but unfortunately we have to move on. Jodie Leitrambath, what have you been thinking about this week? I have just come back from a wedding in Germany. Yay. and I know, it was so good. And so I was quite involved. These are, this is two of my best friends who have just married each other. And so I was quite involved in discussions leading up to the wedding and I thought I understood what I was going to see when I got to the wedding, I thought we were having a shared understanding through our discussions of what that uh, wedding was going to look like. And when I got there, I realised that although we were using all the same words, and they weren't speaking German to me at the time, just to be clear, I don't speak German, but even though we were using all the same English words, what they meant to me meant very different things to what they meant to the German speakers in the conversation. And So when I got there, things like, for example, when my friend had said that there would be coffee and cake in the afternoon, I just thought there would be coffee and cake. But actually, it's this huge, amazing tradition in Germany where like all of the guests bake a cake and bring it for afternoon tea and then and have these beautiful labels. And then it's like this shared gesture of love to the the bride and groom at this huge cake buffet. It's it's phenomenal. So that was not what I was expecting. And that took an enormous amount of coordination as well, which, you know, had I been involved in that part, I I wouldn't have known that that coordination was necessary. So it really got me thinking about shared cultural understandings. And I've been trying to theorise around this. And I'm wondering if I could use the concept of the hinterland to do that. So the hinterland is a an actor network theory 
concept introduced by John Law. And it was originally kind of used as an agricultural concept. Like if you see a packet of eggs on the shelf, then that packet of eggs has a whole history and background and has literally probably come from the hinterlands outside the city that you are buying the packet of eggs from. And that whole history informs what that carton of eggs actually is. So I think you can apply that to ideas and concepts as well. So I have this idea of coffee and cake at a wedding and what that means that has this whole hinterland that comes from my cultural understanding of weddings and my cultural understanding of coffee and cake that I have drawn from to create this image, right? But they were drawing from a completely different hinterland in order to come up with their image. So I guess my question to you is, can you think of other examples where you have had a different cultural hinterland to somebody that you've been speaking to, even though you've been using the same language to describe a concept? That's my everyday experience. (laughs) (laughs) With Australians. (laughs) Right, so you say, you're saying I'm essentializing. No, I don't think you're essentializing. I think what you're describing is a case of like just a fairly standard cultural difference. But how do we theorise around how that difference comes to be? And this comes down to the, the, the ultimate question, how do you create culture, right? What I find interesting about this is I think it's to do with expectations that don't actually become explicit until things go wrong, right? So I think a lot of social theorists have written about this kind of situation. You know, we take things for granted until they come undone and then we're forced to reflect on why we thought things were the way they were. Mm. Is that Mm. what you mean? Yeah, which, you know, it's that that fish out of water. You don't realise that you're a fish swimming in water until you get out of the water and then you realise the rest of the world isn't wet. Zigon talks a bit about this in his, mm. his his anthropology of ethics, where he talks about like the moral breakdown. Exactly, and the that's I- what I was thinking of. The too. idea that you like you go through effectively uncritically and unreflexively through this this moral world, but when you have these kind of two things that come together, you, a contradiction basically. You're exposed to the nature of the machine, how it is that all these parts, that these cultural parts, work together, and you have to kind of wait until you get back into the comfort of the original. System yes. once again. And he draws on Heidegger and Bourdieu there. But can we expect people to to be like you you'd say unreflexive as if that's a bad thing and I think a lot of the time it is, but can we expect people to know the unknowable? I mean, I had no idea that coffee and cake could mean something different before now. And now I know, but I didn't know until I went to Germany. So, like, how can we expect that of people? I'm not sure that we should. Your discussion now just makes me think that perhaps this is learning every day, maybe not with the same level of discomfort or rupture or confrontation, but maybe this is just how we learn new things or or this is just an example of learning new things but at the more extreme end of felt experience, uncomfortable experience. Mm. Yeah, it's how we make or the newness. familiar strange. It's how we do it. <laughs> <God>. <laughs> Julia, what are you thinking about this week? The question is how do you guys feel about situating your singular anthropological studies and the expertise that might come with those studies within a much wider context of research for the purpose of connecting dots and engaging in bigger debates, even if that wider evidence that you're drawing on and other people's expertise that you're drawing on is questionable and you can't actually speak to it. And I guess 
the central question is where does your expertise end when you become publicly accountable? So now that I've put that question out there, I'll give you the context. So basically I, I'm, I've been thinking a lot about, um, especially as an insecure early career researcher who really doesn't feel like I can, like I ever know enough to comment on something in any certain way about my own research, let alone the broader topic that I'm engaged in. So in my case, I've been looking at schizophrenia and how it's treated in Western culture. So I feel like I can only really speak to my specific research area. And I was at this masterclass last week at ANU on how academia can better influence public policy, given how public policy is never just evidence-based, but also driven by you know productive working relationships, political values, uh, which also require us to navigate a few things. And there was an emphasis on First of all, making sure that we're speaking to actual policy questions, so not just our own research questions, and also making sure that we're across both the technical and the theoretical literature on our topic writ large. And there is an issue of academics slipping into an advocacy role or even lobbyist role is what the person running the masterclass said when they start to speak beyond their so-called expertise instead of maintaining the stance of an expert which should be a more humble position of making recommendations but you know emphasizing their limitations although if you're dealing with government you've got to be a bit more forthcoming and present things in quite a black and white way and yeah returning to my initial question how can we draw the line in terms of where our expertise should end if inevitably we have to stretch it a little bit for the sake of engaging in things like public policy or public debate. In my experience, the problem has kind of been the reverse. Like in a previous job, I was called upon as an expert on this particular topic, which I absolutely was not an expert on, and asked to speak for people in a way that I wasn't at all comfortable doing. And so I felt too platformed and I felt like I wasn't an expert but I was being told that I was one and for that reason I was being platformed and given way too much space to speak about something that I didn't have that much experience or knowledge about. So did you feel like you had a choice? No it was my job and I was employed to speak about that thing Mm. but I just always had to preface it and Mm. navigate the role and explain that I was actually really rather mediocre after all. (laughs) (laughs) I feel like expertise is problematic in my view, not because it it gives you not enough space, but that it gives you too much sometimes. I feel like we have a responsibility to be one of the one of the voices in the public domain in that sense though, because we have done the research and although we haven't done all the research, we have done a hell of a lot of reading. You know, that's kind of part of our job is to do the reading and know the stuff. So when we're being asked to be experts on something, I don't think that question, that request is actually about our research. I don't think they, I don't think we're being asked to comment specifically on what we have studied. I think we're being asked to comment on our knowledge of a topic based on not just the questions we've asked people specifically, but also all of the other questions that other people have asked that we're aware of. And I think that's fair because we've, we're, well, none of us are really currently being paid to do that. But, you know, at some point in the future, it'd be really nice if somebody would pay us to 
be the person who does that reading and does that research and then has an impact on the world because of that. And I think we need to be able to back ourselves because it isn't other people's jobs to do that reading and then let the rest of the world know what that reading says. No one else is going to back us either. Hell yes. That's exactly right. So, Kylie. Okay, well, this week I've been thinking about sharing and about giving, receiving, reciprocity and relationships. But one of the reasons why I've been thinking about that is because very shortly TFS is going to launch our Patreon account. (laughs) (laughs) So I'm wondering this week if relationships are formed by acts of giving and reciprocity or whether a relationship has to exist before reciprocity can be introduced or giving and reciprocity can be introduced. Well, I mean, the answer is always both, but do you mean to say whether a relationship startup depends on reciprocity in the first place? Because I think it always requires some kind of reciprocal exchange to continue, but... But what are the conditions under which you can ask somebody for something? A relationship. Sure, but what kind of a relationship? Like, okay, so say I go into a shop and I have a have banter with the shopkeeper who I have never met before and then at the end of that banter I say, well, now that we're mates, how about a discount on uh, <laughs> that little item that you're about to sell me at full price? Do I have the right to ask that because I've formed a relationship? And in which culture do I have have the the right right to ask that? Do I? Is that not offensive? You do, but I think you might be overplaying the depth of the relationship that you've just made. And it's worked before. Well, (laughs) lucky Jodie. It's interesting because it really puts strangers to the test in terms of how much they will oblige one's request like I imagine just because I'm a polite person who hates saying no I would say yes to your request whether or not I thought it was reasonable but then on the other hand I I would ask that of somebody I didn't know I wouldn't ask that of somebody I did know I wouldn't ask of a friend ah so there's already a a sense that it might be a short-term transaction so you can exploit someone maybe oh wow I sound like a terrible person (laughs) the inner workings of Jodie's mind that's right interesting I don't know. What do you think, Simon? But I get, look, I guess if Mouse is right, giving is a relationship. You enter into a relationship by giving something. So this is Marcel Mouse? This is Marcel Mouse. Yes. The gift. The, the gift. gift. Yeah. And Marcel Mouse said that, what? That you had to give something in order to enter a relationship. He basically says the act of giving is itself a relationship. The idea of commodity exchange is juxtaposed to things like supposedly juxtaposed to things like giving gift economies and the idea of the gift is that it contains part of the person it's it's part of like the the relationship there is a relationship inbuilt to that act of giving so in a sense it might be possible to think from that that yeah you don't need to have a relationship to begin with right if you if there's just somebody before you you can give them something and you're from there on entailed if they continue to to give back and reciprocate. I think if you give a gift to someone, you are entering into a relationship with that person. There's no way you can't you can't give a gift that isn't devoid of a relationship. Is it devoid right. of obligation? Great question. A gift. Hmm. Like no, a gift is an oblig is a, is a relationship of obligations. Always. But what's in I every guess, culture? Well, this is the idea. Is there such thing as a free gift? A gift that doesn't entail some kind of reciprocal relationship with someone else. James Laidlaw would say, yes, there is a free gift, 
but the circumstances under which it takes place are very specific. Examples are from southern India and the Jain community there. Well, <laughs> did that did that answer <laughs> your question in any way? I think I agree with Julia. I think it's always both. I just wanted to hear what you think. <laughs> <laughs> Well, and now that. you have, and, and it's, sorry it's so hard and it's so sticky. So it's something that I but wanted it's to the, raise. It's at the heart of anthropology, the reciprocity stuff. So I think it's, yeah, it never gets old. It's a good thing to think through. And if anyone feels any particular expertise on the topic in our Facebook chat group, please give tell back. us. Yes, <laughs> give that's back. Right. right. And for that matter, if anybody is feeling particularly like gifting, uh, please do check out our new Patreon page because this is a labour of love and we hope that you enjoy it. And if you do enjoy it, please help us keep it going. It's Patreon backslash The Familiar Strange. And you can find more information on our website, www.the familiarstrange.com That's all we have time for. I want to thank Jodalee Trambath. Thanks, Simon. Julia Brown. Thank you very much. Carly Wong-Dolan. Thanks, Simon. And me, Simon Theobald. Thank you, Simon. Your host today. Today's episode was produced by all of us at The Familiar Strange. Our executive producers are Deanna Caddo and Matthew Fong. Subscribe to The Familiar Strange podcast. You can find us on iTunes and all the other familiar places, including Spotify. You can find the show notes, including a list of all the books and papers mentioned today, plus our blog about anthropology's role in the world at thefamiliarstrange.com. If you want to contribute to the blog or have anything to say to me or the other hosts of the program, email us at submissions at thefamiliarstrange.com, tweet to us at TFS Tweets, or look us up on Facebook and Instagram. Music was by Pete Dabro. Special thanks to Nick Farrelly, Will Grant and Maud Rowe. Thanks for listening and until next time, keep talking strange.